I'd invite you to join as we take some time to read the scriptures this morning. If you open up your Red Pew Bibles to page 824, we're going to be reading in Galatians from chapter 3, verse 26 to chapter 4, verse 7. And you'll note in this passage some echoes of what Kevin has already read to us from Romans, where it talks about inheritance and adoption. What a beautiful picture that Paul paints for us this morning as we look at the truth of our adoption, the truth of our inheritance that comes through in this passage. Galatians chapter 3, starting at verse 26. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I am saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. This is God's word for us. Good morning. Uh, oh, it's a bit slippery up here. <laughs> just gonna maybe I'll just put a, put a safer safer place for that water. That's great. Thanks, Kevin. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, it's so encouraging to be able to gather in this way and to worship together and to fellowship. If you're a guest with us, I hope you feel welcome this morning as well. Just want to start off this morning by saying how thankful I am for for this opportunity. Uh, just counted a real privilege to be able to speak to you in this way. Today, uh, I'm, I'm thankful for this, this chance to, to be together. Uh, I really appreciate the, the leadership team that we have here, the, the team that I work with and the elders for, for supporting in, me in this and encouraging me through this. They've been a big help in, in my preparation as well. So just uh, glad to be together and, and hope we can be encouraged this morning. Would you pray with me as we start? God, we look to you this morning. God, you love us. You have chosen us and you have adopted us. We ask this morning, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to us. We know that you have good things to speak into our hearts and to our lives. God, would you help us this morning to see you as a good father, a father who loves and cares for his children, who delights in his children. Would you reveal yourself to us through your word this morning? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been in the book of Galatians for the past month or so as a church. Um... The the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Galatia to clarify the gospel of Jesus, the good news of the work that Christ has done. He wants to make it very clear that we are justified, meaning to be put in right relationship with God, through faith, by grace in Jesus, not by works of obedience. We are saved by the gift of grace, and if we try to add our own merit for salvation, we have missed the good news altogether. So we have summed up This understanding with a phrase, when it comes to our relationship with God, Jesus plus something equals nothing. 
But Jesus plus nothing equals everything. This beautiful truth that in Christ alone we have everything. We lack nothing. Last week we looked at Galatians chapter 3 where we see yet another clarification that Paul makes. He shows us that the law was given for a purpose. It was not designed to save us, rather to show us that we need a savior. Ultimately, the law was given to point us to God. If the law was given to impart part life to us, then we could be saved by our own deeds. But the law was given to show us our own need for a savior, our own unrighteousness. So that we would see how desperately we need the grace and mercy of our Lord. We also talked about the promise given to Abraham, the covenant that God makes with Abraham, and how Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that covenant. Chapter 3, starting in verse 24, says, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But what I want us to see today is not only are we justified or made right with God in a legal sense, we are made right with God in a relational sense, in a personal sense. God is not just a judge with a gavel declaring us innocent. He is a loving father with open arms, ready to embrace us. I want to take you on a small trip back in time this morning. If you would go with me and picture 17-year-old Josh. If you're not sure what that looks like, think lanky, kind of awkward, still hasn't grown into his body, right? Feet bigger than his body should have still. Are you getting that image? Beginning of summer, yeah, if you still don't know, just kind of look. It's, hasn't, yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, getting ready for, for camp, got my bags packed, it's sunny, sun is shining, I'm excited, and I'm going up to camp for, for the LIT program, and I'm, and I'm thinking, I'm going to prove myself. I'm going to show them what I've got. I'm going to show them who the real Josh Clausen is, right? This is my mindset. I go and meet a whole bunch of other awkward 16 to 18-year-olds, and we're all awkward together. So they take us on a canoe trip to make us feel even more awkward. And, and uh, my LIT director sat us down and she said this to us. And this changed, uh, it really shattered my world. It changed the way I viewed myself and God. And, and she said this, there's nothing you could ever do to make God love you more. And there's nothing you could ever do to make God love you less. God already loves you the maximum amount. Nothing you could ever do will change the amount that he loves you. You can't make him love you more, and you can't make him love you less. You can't win God's affection by what you do. That broke down every barrier for our group. It made us vulnerable and open and and able to just trust each other and seek, seek God together. So when we come to see God as a loving father, as the one who knows us and cares for us, this changes everything. Understanding that the Most High God has adopted me as His Son radically transforms the way I treat others, the way I view myself, and ultimately how I interact with Him. This morning we're nearing the end of chapter 3, so we're getting to the the conclusion of an idea here. And so as I studied this passage, it seemed a little bit backwards to me. It seemed like it's written slightly out of order and and kind of counterintuitive, and so it took me a while to see a common theme emerging from the pages, as Paul might write. Am I saying that this text is incorrect or poorly written? Certainly not. By no means. It's a Bible joke, I know. I wrote in my notes here, pause for roaring laughter. There it is, yeah. But it seems that 
that Paul states his conclusions at the outset and then has to take some time to uh, explain the deeper nuances and clarify what, his mean, what he means by his words. However, like a fine work of abstract art, as we stare at the pages and maybe tilt our head or squint, we can start to see an image, the true image, come to the surface. In verse 26 we read, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. This is the main point of the passage. This is the whole focus of this section, and so we're going to spend the bulk of the time unpacking this idea. I hope we will see the significant implications and practical applications that are laid out for us in the subsequent text. I think Paul gives us three major applications of this truth, and they're all relational in nature. If I am called a son of God, how does this affect how I relate to God? How does this change how I see myself? And how does this influence the way I treat others? In other words, since I am one of God's children, I inherently know these things about my father, myself, and my siblings. Three relationships, three points of focus, God, self, and others, up, in, and out. Now again, this text is not written in that order, so we're going to follow the flow of the text, which is others, self, and then God. We are all adopted sons of God, therefore we must treat each other as such. If I see you and other Christians as adopted by God, then we will inevitably, this will inevitably change the way we interact. Verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. This word to put on literally means to clothe ourselves. We are clothed with Christ. We are covered by him. Clothing is significant. Our clothing says something about who we are. People identify themselves in some way with what they're wearing, right? You see someone wearing a Blue Jays jersey, you see them, and immediately you know something about that person, or you assume something about that person. If you're a Blue Jays fan, you automatically have some sort of connection with them, just based on what they're wearing. How we clothe ourselves says something about how we see ourselves. I have spent most of my life in a gym, I have a degree in kinesiology, spent a lot of hours shooting hoops, and so a normal day-to-day outfit for me is track pants and a hoodie, right? It's comfy, flowy, breathable. That's what what I'm comfortable in, that's normal. However, it was recently brought to my attention that my attire was not always the most professional, right? So naturally, I went to Costco and bought a pair of jeans for $10, and that's what I wear every day now. It's as good as it gets. But Paul is telling us here that for those who believe, we have clothed ourselves in Christ. Our clothes are the closest thing to us. Literally, they are touching our skin. They move with us. They cover us from the elements. We should be known and united by the thing that is most true about all of us. We find our identity in Jesus, just like we identify ourselves by what we wear. And so when it comes to interaction with other believers, we should do so in the unity of the spirit that we share. We should focus on what unites us, which is Christ, not what divides us or might potentially bring division. He goes on to say in verse 28, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. Why? For you are all one in Christ. Maintain the unity of the Spirit in a bond of peace. This leaves no room for gossip or speaking poor of another. This leaves no room for us to be judgmental of other believers. They are clothed in Christ. 
And that's how you should see them. This should change the way we interact on a daily basis. You see, if I see you as being clothed with Christ, I will not talk poorly about you behind your back. I won't gossip. It means that when conflict arises between us, I would intentionally and gently seek out to resolve that conflict with you in a Christ-like way. Tim Keller says this. It should be on the screen. The gospel has radical social implications. It means that I am a Christian before I am anyone or anything else. It means that all the barriers that separate people into warring factions come down in Christ. So, I'm not primarily a Canadian. I'm not primarily a Clausen or an MB. I am not primarily someone who likes sports or a worship leader. I am a Christian. I am a disciple. An adopted son of God. And so having put on Christ, when I interact with you, it should be on the understanding that you are clothed with Christ. You are a son of God. I will not hold it against you that you're a weens. (laughs) And with that, I have effectively offended one-third of this whole room, (laughs) including half the worship team today. Because we are all sons of the same Father and heirs of the same promise, we should be one in Christ. And we should live like it. If this passage is convicting us in this way, today we should allow the Spirit to move us into action. We should be seeking to maintain unity in the Spirit. Don't harbor unforgiveness against your neighbor. Don't hold a grudge. Don't give the devil a foothold. If you need to be forgiven, go ask for grace. If you've been holding a grudge, ask the Lord to lead you to repent of that. Our God is a gracious and forgiving God. And so if we are clothed in Christ, then we will in turn be gracious and forgiving of others. Love is active. Love is patient. Love is gentle. God has adopted us as sons. Therefore, we are family. If we are adopted by our Heavenly Father, then that makes us brothers and sisters. That makes us family. What does it look like for us to treat each other as family? What does it look like? How does this change the way we do conflict? How does this change the way we open our homes to each other? The way we do family meals and holidays? If we are family. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says, Someone told him, being Jesus, Your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Jesus redefines the family relationship. Our adoption into God, God's family changes every aspect of our lives. Now just to clarify, when it talks about us being called sons of God, it is a lowercase s son, right? Unlike Jesus, who is the capital S, son of God, he alone is holy, he alone is set apart. Also, you may be a woman, and you may be thinking, I don't want to be a son, I am a daughter, which is fair. This is true, but the language of son here has cultural significance. At the time this is written, daughters would not be allowed to inherit property. So to be called a son means that you have the legal right to become an heir, meaning you are legally able to receive the inheritance which is much more significant than just calling us all children. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. This changes how we live, how we love, and how we treat others. Our adoption as sons not only changes how we view others, 
but how we see ourselves. It changes our identity. Understanding our adoption into God's family radically changes the way we view ourselves, where our confidence lies and where our motivation is. It goes on to say in verse 29, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So let's pause here for a moment. In ancient cultures, it was customary for a child to to be under a guardian, under the watch of a guardian. A boy's guardian or tutor was a legally appointed overseer, authorized to train or bring up a child by administering discipline, chastisement, instruction. One commentary even called them a babysitter. A guardian would have been a slave of the homeowner, the boy's father. So the picture here, when Paul says, although you are an heir to your father's wealth, you are functioning as a slave because you are under the watch and discipline of one of your father's slaves. So essentially, you're a slave of a slave, which is not the most glamorous picture. Verse 3, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. We're all slaves to something. Whether that is the law and our immense efforts to live a good life, striving to earn our standing before God or others, struggling and doubting to believe that we are acceptable, that we are good enough, or, we are, or are we enslaved to the elementary principles of the world? Lust, greed, envy, jealousy, slander, selfishness. What are the things that we're enslaved to? In what ways are we not living like chosen, redeemed sons of God? Heirs according to the promise. How does the good news of Jesus, that you are chosen and accepted and loved, no matter what you do, change the way you see your sin? It's not about what we do. It's about what he has done for us. Notice in verse 2, it says, But he is under guardians when... Until the date set by his father. Verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. We don't have a say. We didn't get to choose. We are slaves. We are children of slaves. And it's not up to us. It was never up to us, right? Ephesians Ephesians chapter chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one may boast. So where does this lead us? The answer is humility. This should lead us to humility. There There is something really beautiful about the vulnerability and helplessness of a newborn baby. Isn't it so fitting that we all start out like that? Weak, helpless, needy, completely unable to do anything for ourselves, incapable of earning anything. We don't get anywhere in this life on our own. It takes a few years before we can do much of anything for ourselves. Yet somewhere along the way, we all become proud. Look what I have earned. Look at all the things I can do. Look how much money I have. Look how much freedom I've earned. Look at my ability to do this or that. Look, Mom, no hands, right? Look at me. But right from the beginning, it's been grace. It was always grace. God has given us the gift of life, this gift. And then we fell slave to the patterns of this world or to our own selfishness, to our own sinfulness. 
And God, being an almighty and all-knowing Father, steps into our mess and redeems us. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. Born of a woman, meaning that He was fully human. Born under the law, which means He was tempted and still held to the standard of perfection. To redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And that is our identity. We don't have to earn anything. We are called sons of God. He has redeemed us. He has chosen us. He has adopted us. We need to live in this identity. We need to find our confidence, our purpose in this truth. I was adopted by the best dad in the world. I am chosen. I have purpose. I have eternal value. I had the privilege this past week to sit down with... uh, a few different people on both sides of the adoption process, those who had been adopted as children and those who have adopted children themselves. And what a beautiful picture of God's loving pursuit of us. What a a powerful story. This whole process is powerful. Every story, of course, is different, but adoption can be a long and grueling process. It can be years of waiting and praying and anticipation. It can be a step into the unknown. Often it means that you are inviting a complete stranger to be a part of your family and a part of your life. You are choosing to love a person without really knowing them. Being willing to say, I'm going to love you no matter what you might be like or what you might do. And as I heard these stories of lives being changed, of children being chosen and welcomed into a new family, this phrase came to me. You take the broken and make them beautiful. Is not so true of us. Adoption is the journey from brokenness to beauty. From isolation to family. From feeling unworthy to feeling loved. From abandonment to acceptance. Jesus took our brokenness and made us beautiful. And the only difference is that he knew exactly how sinful we were. He knew every deep dark corner of our hearts. And yet he still chose us. He knows us today and he still chooses us. To be adopted means that you were worth fighting for. It means that you were chosen, handpicked. To be adopted means that you have a family, that you are loved. It means that someone went out of their way. They had to go way out of their way to lay down their comfort, their money, their time, their freedom, so that you would have a home and a better life. See, the process of adoption is the process of saying, I love you and I choose you and I'm committed to you no matter what. I will fight for you. I will treat you as my own. I will stand up for you. The Father goes out of his way to make a very clear point of saying to us, I love you. I choose you. You are accepted in my eyes. That's powerful. That has the power to radically change a life. That is something that every human soul longs for. This is what we need this is where we, are, where we find who we really are. This is our identity. This is where it lies in the loving arms of a forgiving father. We are chosen. We are adopted. We are loved. There's an insert in your bulletin that comes from uh, Tim Keller's book, Center Church. I've been reading through that. And uh, on the title it says, uh, Religion versus the Gospel. But I think you could replace these words with the orphan versus the adopted son. It's in there to help you further your thoughts and and shape your thoughts about 
the way you live. You can bring this home with you. Having a gospel identity as an adopted son changes our motivation. It changes why we obey. It changes our self-image, our personal worship, our prayer life. I hope you find this helpful and can start to see how the gospel can change your heart and your attitude in everyday moments of life. Growing up, I can distinctly remember having the, the argument with friends, my dad is bigger than your dad. Oh yeah, well, my dad is taller than your dad. Oh yeah, well, mine is stronger, right? And on and on it goes. You've heard this before. My, uh, my go-to, the thing I always pulled out was, oh yeah, my dad is a scientist. Yeah. I don't know why, why we do this, right? Why do kids argue on behalf of their fathers? They don't need to be defended. They don't need us to argue for them. It's because this is where our identity lies. This is where our confidence comes from. This is where we find value. We innately identify ourselves by who we belong to. We have this inner understanding that who I am is who I belong to. Say that again. Who I am is who I belong to. My identity is that I belong to to God. The great poet, Big Daddy Weave, in one of his songs says, I belong to God. I belong to Jesus. I'm saved by his power and I'm washed in his blood. I'll say to the darkness, you don't own me anymore. I belong to God. May this be so among us. May we be people who are so profoundly confident in our daddy, in our Abba Father, that we would be able to walk in freedom Freedom from insecurity and self-doubt. Freedom from pride and judgment. Freedom from law-based works righteousness. It doesn't come from us. What Paul is saying here is that we don't have to earn anything. And we couldn't if we tried, by the way. We already are sons of God, by grace, through faith. This is the gift of God. We have a Father who knows us, loves us, and chooses us. And this leads me to my final point this morning. How then do we relate to our Heavenly Father? Right? Three relationships. Others, self, and God. Verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son, capital S, into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. He has given us everything. We are heirs according to the promise. Which means that he will prosper us. He will bless us. And he has chosen to be in covenant relationship with us. There is nothing that can come between him and us. There is intimacy in our father. We get to come home from school and say, Hey dad, guess what I did today? We get to walk with him. We can be proud to walk with him. Because we know that he is pleased with us. I was at a wedding recently and during the reception they, they started the celebration uh, by introducing the wedding party and everyone that was involved in the ceremony. And so they had the music playing and the couples would, the pairs would dance in down the back as they would, they would get announced. And, and uh, it came time to announce or introduce the flower girl. She's about five or six. So they opened the doors, they announced her, whatever her her name was, and, and uh, the door's open and, and nothing happens. No one comes out, right? Music's playing. We're all kind of waiting. We look, and then boom, like a shot out of a cannon. She comes running out from the doors, sprinting across the room, and the look of terror in her eyes 
was hilarious. She's like shaking as she's running. So she does not want to be in the spotlight, clearly. And all she's doing is she's scanning the room looking for who? For her dad. So she runs across the dance floor in front of the head table, all the way across the hall, terrified in her eyes, and she runs to who? To her father, directly into the arms of her her loving father. In her moment of great fear, she runs to her daddy, where she knows she is safe. We can approach him with confidence because he is gracious to us, because he loves us. He has chosen us right from the beginning. We get to walk with him, do life with him, and talk with him. 1 Thessalonians 5 says, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Pray without ceasing. Be constantly in conversation with your Heavenly Father. He wants to be with you. He wants you to abide in Him. This is God's will for you. This means that when we're embarrassed or ashamed or so afraid that we're just not good enough, when we are so disheartened by our perpetual sin, we can run to Him. We should run to Him because that is the safest place to be. It has always been grace. And that's not going to change. Recently, a few of us were at a conference and the speaker said this, and it really spoke to me. He said, Don't live like you're poor. If you're a Christian, you should not be living like you're poor. Why? Because you've got a rich dad. You've got a rich dad. His point was this. As Christ followers, we should be so generous. Because we've got a rich dad. And he is incredibly generous. And so, because he is rich and generous, in turn, we should also be generous. In the same way, Paul is saying here, don't live like you're a slave. Stop living like you're enslaved to the law. You're not. He calls you his son. You are adopted. Everything he has, he gives to you. You are an heir. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. He dwells inside of you. And so Paul writes, It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God. We are no longer slaves. We are sons. We are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God. Let's live like sons. When we start to see God as our loving Father, we can be confident to approach Him. When we realize that that God delights in His children, it brings us joy to be with Him. We can be real. We can be honest. He can handle it. We can trust that He is for us. We are adopted sons of God, therefore we can be free to love others generously. We can be confident in our identity in Christ, and we can walk in intimate relationship with our Heavenly Father. We are clothed in Christ. We have put on Christ, therefore we should be united in Him. We are adopted as sons of the living God, so we can walk in confidence with Him. And we are heirs according to the promise. We have been given this amazing blessing. We have been given the gift of grace. And so we can now live in freedom. Galatians 5 says it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. We have good news. We are sons of the king. So like a child that says my dad is bigger than your dad. We should live lives that say look how big my dad is. Look how strong my dad is. Look how loving and gracious 
and kind and gentle. My heavenly Father is. And we should share him. We should walk in the freedom and confidence to say, he can be your dad too. So for those among us that don't know him as Savior, who don't know him as loving Heavenly Father, maybe you're just exploring what it means to follow Jesus. Maybe you don't know Jesus at all and you're just wondering who he is. Maybe it's been a long time since you've spoken to your Abba Father as your dad who loves you. My word to you today is this, run to him. Run to him with fear and trembling in your eyes. Run to him knowing that his loving arms are there for you, that he will accept you, that he has chosen you, and you are safe in his arms. Trust that he loves you. There's nothing you could ever do to make God love you more, and there's nothing that you could ever do to make God love you less. You can walk in the freedom of the love of our Heavenly Father. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you love us. We thank you, Lord, that you have chosen us. What an amazing gift. What freedom and life that brings to us. That you have chosen and loved us. You have accepted us. That we are made right in your eyes on the merit of Jesus. God, would you make us a people that grow to know and understand this in a deeper and truer way? Would you make us a people who walk in the freedom of your love. Thank you, Lord, for how you reveal yourself to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.